0: My goodness. You know, that's actually great theology right there. I don't know if you realize this. Think about it. My body tells me no, but I won't quit. Because I want more. What did Jesus over 2,000 years ago, who told us that the, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak? How many of us know that sometimes the flesh is weak? I'm just saying. And we, we know this not only because Jesus said it, we, we know that it's true if it came out of his mouth and if it's recorded in scripture, we know that it's true. But we also know this from our own experience, our own our track record, our past is a powerful predictor of our own predisposition for self-preservation and protection, to to play it safe. Now, some of that we've inherited from a very good place. I mean, if our ancestors hadn't had that predisposition for self-protection and preservation, they wouldn't have known to avoid and evade the saber-toothed tiger and the grizzly bears, and so we wouldn't be here. So some of that is just a natural good thing, but that predisposition a lot of times, if we're not really careful, can also work against us in some powerful, powerful ways. Because it causes us to shrink back and to to hold back rather than diving in a lot of times. You know, I was fishing with my good friend David Hughes. He's preached here a few times and is really one of my best friends in the world. I was fishing with him down in the Florida Keys a few years ago. We were tarpon fishing. And this particular day, our guide, a guy by the name of Drew, had anchored up on what he expected to be the line, kind of the, the tarpon highway just off the beach there in the keys. And David was on the bow of the boat. I was minding my time, waiting for my turn, and the guide was on the polling platform behind me. And we noticed after we'd been anchored up for about 10 minutes that the wind had kind of picked up and the waves were kind of rocking the boat, and so we had, we'd kind of drifted off of the line a little bit, and our our guide kind of got frustrated and hacked him. He goes, David, pull up the anchor. And he came down off the platform, and we motored back around to where the highway was supposed to be and set up shop one more time and sat there for another 10 minutes or so. And the wind just kept blowing, man. It was tough to see. It was tough to cast, you know, fly into the wind. And sure enough, we started drifting off of that line one more time. And David and I were scanning the waters in front of us looking for tarpon. When all of a sudden we heard from behind us on the polling platform uh, an expression, I will just say it charitably, of frustration from our guide. And before we knew what was going on, we turned around and he was disrobing on the polling platform behind us. And Dave and I were a little concerned, you know, because things in the keys can get a little crazy quickly. And, and he stopped, thankfully, at taking off of his shirt and his flip-flops. And without any announcement whatsoever, Drew dove into the water. And Dave and I were what's he doing And he swam the length of the boat. I was watching as he swam by, and he got around to where the anchor chain went down to where the anchor was. And he pulled his way down to about eight feet of depth. And you could see kind of through the water there, he just stuck the anchor in the bottom of the ocean and came back up, swam to the boat, climbed out, and climbed back up on the polling platform. I learned a profound spiritual truth that day, and it is this that the anchor only holds if you dig in. The anchor only holds if you dig in. And that's exactly what we're doing today as we launch this series, Tough as Nails, Choosing Grit Over Quit. This series, over the next few weeks as a church, is a call to arms, a a calling and a a mandate, really, to to dig in to the Christian faith, to, to quit playing at church, or to quit playing at being a Christian, but to really and truly dig in, to to stick your faith into the solid ground of a relationship with Christ that is thriving and flourishing and growing, so that no matter what the way the winds blow or how high the waves go, the anchor will hold. That's what this is all about. Now, I will tell you as we begin this series, it's going to be challenging. We are in for something that I think God has prepared for us in order to prepare us for where he's taken us. This is a challenge that I think we're up for, but I think it's also a challenge that we need. You may remember if you were here at the beginning of the year as a church, we followed God's leading, we, we prayed together and decided that this is the year for us as a church, for us individually to, to live the year of living fearlessly. And we took on the the Fearless 30 challenge. A lot of us read through the entire book of Proverbs. Others of us are still engaged in a plan like I am to read through the entire Bible this year. And there were some who even went so far as to take on the Fearless 30 challenge. And they ate healthy and clean with no cheating for 30 days. These are the stout-hearted amongst us. But that was January. That, That was... That was back at the beginning of the year. Here we are at the end of April, the beginning of May. And let's be honest, we, we've kind of burned off the new and the fresh from the beginning of 2016. So today, we hit the reset button. Today, we're going to begin a teaching series that goes to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to go to a passage in Hebrews over the next few weeks and just excavate it and mine it for everything it's worth. In Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12, God issues to people who would follow Jesus an amazing call to dig in, to really and truly get serious about it and quit playing games. Now, I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 10, or if you've got it on your phone, get there, and as you're looking up Hebrews 10... I'll tell you we're going to start in just a second with verse 19, but I want to give you some context, because if you just pick up Hebrews chapter 10 and start reading, it may seem like it's kind of coming a little bit out of left field. The book of Hebrews, as you might imagine, was written to a group of Hebrews, and um, that was funny. You should have laughed right there. But we're not sure who the author was. In some places, it sounds a little like Paul, there are other parts and, and phrases that have no similarity to anything that Paul wrote in the New Testament, so we're not sure who the author is, but we do know this, that the book of Hebrews was included in the canon of Scripture, that body of work, of literature that was supernaturally communicated and supernaturally translated so that God's people would understand God's purposes and would understand who he is and what he's up to in this world from Genesis to Revelation. And and the book of Hebrews has as its audience three kind of groups of people that I think we could all really connect with at at one level or another here 2,000 years later. It was written around 65 or 70 AD, Jesus had ascended back to heaven around 30, 32 AD. So there was a a little bit of a gap between when he was walking on the earth and when this letter was written, but it was written before the temple was destroyed under Roman auspices. So we know roughly when it was written, but there's there's these three different groups that are kind of the target audience of the group of, of the book of Hebrews. The first target would be those Jews who had grown up in the Jewish tradition and culture and religion and ritual, but had since committed their lives to Christ. They had said, we're going to take this culture, but go with Jesus himself, who was Jewish, and we believe that he is the son of the living God. We believe that he is the Messiah that has been prophesied for centuries, and we will follow him. Another group would be a group of Jews who believed intellectually that Jesus was who he said he was, but they had not yet personally committed themselves to Jesus. They, they were a group that kind of were kicking the tires from a distance, and, and they would affirm and nod at all the right places, but it hadn't made a difference personally in their lives yet. It was just kind of a, something to agree with and look at at arm's length. But then there was a third group of Hebrews in that day and age who had neither committed their lives to Christ personally nor did they agree with it intellectually. They were just like, these people are whack-a doodle do. We, we don't know what's going on with this whole new little Christian thing, but you just knock yourselves out. They also are a target audience of the book of Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the writer begins from a place of commonality. He, he begins with something that his audience would identify with and connect with. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, hold on to that, the curtain or the veil, that is his body, Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, the temple, let us draw near to God, with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water now hold on to that little dot 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 right there cuz i'm, I'm going to come back but let me let me just kind of dissect that a second cuz there's a lot going on in here first of all he says dear brothers and sisters let us take stock of the reality that We have access through our great priest, who is Jesus, into the most holy place. He's referring here to a spot in the temple that every Jew would have been aware of and known about, referred to as the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the inner sanctum of the temple of the Jews that was so sacred that it was only occupied by one person one day a year. One day a year, the high priest over all Israel, amongst all the other priests, could enter into the Holy of Holies, which was behind the curtain. Don't forget the curtain. And he would enter into the Holy of Holies in order to offer and sacrifice and an offering for the forgiveness of sins of his and the entire nation of Israel. He would enter into that one day a year. One day. It was so sacred, this is why it was referred to as the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now the curtain was important. When I say the word curtain, a lot of us think about something maybe in our living room that keeps the sun out and, and it's pretty and it's fabric and it's material, but that is a gross understatement of this particular curtain or the veil of the temple. The veil or curtain in the temple that separated the holy of holies from the outer courts was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. This required special delivery from Home Depot. This was not just any curtain or veil. I mean, it was a big deal. And the reason that God specified such a thick, massive curtain or veil is so that the nation of Israel would always remember how sacred. It is to enter the presence of God, that they would never take it for granted and never come before God or just go, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I walked into the Holy of Holies. You had to be trying to get into the Holy of Holies. And they knew that it was reserved only for the high priest one day a year. And then that same passage in Hebrews chapter 10 goes on. It says, we enter to the curtain and we have a clean conscience because of our great priest, who is Jesus and our souls have been sprinkled with blood. This is a reference to the Israelite sacrificial system that was instituted under Moses and carried on all the way through that Jesus ultimately fulfilled himself when he died on the cross and rose again as the perfect, ultimate sacrifice. Now, once a year before Jesus, B.C., one time a year, the the priest would enter in, He would sprinkle blood on the horns of the altar because God had designated back in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus that blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. And so that blood represented God's forgiveness. But that was merely a foreshadowing. That was all used to point toward Jesus. But I want you to notice how every single reference in Hebrews chapter 10, the holy of holies, the temple itself, the curtain, he says, which is his body, the priest, the sacrifice, the forgiveness, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. It is only in Jesus that all is fulfilled. And yet in Jesus, all is fulfilled. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling them, listen, whatever you do, just remember these things. Remember that we have access to God the Father. We don't need a priest as our intercessor anymore. We don't need anybody to come between us and God because Jesus has already gone for us. He is our intercessor, our great high priest. And so whoever would choose to follow him, whoever would respond to him, to his grace initiative, is in that relationship with God already. He is both the temple and the priest, and the sacrifice, all wrapped into one. It's an amazing statement, and we're just getting started. This is just the setup. This is just the beginning of where the writer of Hebrews is going. Look at what he says now. Because of all these things, check this out. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Say unswervingly. That is now my new favorite word. I love the word unswervingly. That's a great word. I'm going to use that with my marriage. I made a commitment to Julie. We're going to stay married unswervingly. We may hit the brakes from time to time, but we're not going to swerve. It's an amazing word to hold unswervingly to this hope that we profess. Now, the hope that we profess is, of course, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that God so loved you that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would never die but would have eternal life starting right here and right now. That's the hope that we profess, that we we hang on to. And so we are not letting go of that. We're going to hold on to that tooth and nail. We're going to dig in to that hope because of that hope and hang on with everything we've got, now I think it would be easy to to talk about, you know, hold on to that hope, unswervingly. You know, get fired, go get them, Tiger. You just you hold unswervingly. You don't let go. Yeah. How? What? What do we do? You know, it's, it's great to. To think about everything that Jesus did for us and, and the way that he, he fulfilled all of the prophecies and the way that he opened up a path to God the Father for us when we didn't deserve it, that's awesome. But what do we do? How, how, do, we, how do we make that stick? And that is the ultimate point. Because, you see, it's important as you read Scripture, as you get more familiar with it, as you get more adept at reading it and using it and owning it that you remember it's never about just knowing what the Bible says. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees during Jesus' day, man, they were the authority, Jack. They were the religious intelligentsia, the self-appointed watchdogs of that day. They walked around very, very proud of themselves. You need to know something about the Bible? I'm your boy. You just let me know. I've got rules about the rules. I've got commands about the commands. I'm so deep that I make up laws about the laws. You see this, you see this tunic that I'm wearing? <laughs> this is not off the rack, Jack. I've got laws about how high the tassels are from the ground because I am deep. And Jesus told him over and over and over and over and over again, you don't get it. This isn't about the rules. This isn't about your laws and your regulations. This is about relationship. This is about living in life that is truly life. Now because of the relationship, the rules then have meaning and significance and power. Ritual can be a powerful thing. but. Only so far as it informs and strengthens and deepens the relationship. But you know, there's something in us that naturally gravitates to rules over relationship. That's the reason why we love books and buy them by the boatload. Seven habits of highly effective people. Well, there are only seven things. I can do seven things. The Ten Commandments, I like me some Ten Commandments. I can remember those, most of them. (laughs) Three secrets of great parents. The secret. Man, we like us some lists. We like rules. But how many of us realize that relationship is hard dad gum work? Somebody help me preach. I mean, relationship is hard. It's great when it's working great. Man, when you're on the same page, when everything's clicking with your kids, with your friends, at the office, when when relationship is great and you're making money, and every yeah, high five, whoa, you closed another one. What do you mean you didn't close? And all of a sudden, relationship breaks down. Relationship gets messy. Relationship requires actual effort. Well, that's a downer, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if in your marriage, let's say, you you had three things that you had to do every day to make sure you had a great marriage? Wouldn't that be awesome? Sign me up for that. But no. My marriage changes every day. Am I the only one? Or are you just scared to laugh right now? I mean... My wife is a beautiful, God-honoring, just awesome, I started to say big, I mean awesome, (laughs) ever-changing, dynamic mystery. It's part of what draws me to her. It's part of what drives me nuts, but thank God, thank God she changes. Thank God that our relationship grows and and develops, and, and I do have to dig in. I do have to engage. See, the author of Hebrews is not willing to let us stand pat and accept the status quo. You see, the author of Hebrews is calling us to live on a higher plane, The author of Hebrews is calling us to live different. The author of Hebrews is calling us to not settle for what passes for normal in the world. Look look, look at what he says. He he goes on. He says, you know, let's hold unswervingly to this hope that we profess. Now, check this out. And let us consider. Let's really and truly think about this. Let's... Let's decide. Let's deliberate. Let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That means it's not just emotion and kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. No, no, no. It's real love. It's active. There are good deeds attached to it. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more you see as the day is approaching. Let's let's realize this gift that is the church, the, the family of faith. Nobody holds on to a resolution by themselves. God has given us this gift of each other to not just go to church unless we get a better option, but to be the church. Now, we're not suggesting that gathering doesn't matter. Hello, we're gathered right now. Everybody in this room has said, by your actions, it matters. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It includes that, but it's more than that. But when we gather together, there is something supernaturally dynamic at work that you can't have by yourself. You see, the fact of the matter is we need each other. We need each other. If you've been around here any amount of time at all, you know that I played basketball when I was in high school. Not very well, but I played. I made the team, got the coach's award, which means he had no talent, but he tried hard. (laughs) When I think back to my basketball days in high school, I remember some of the games for sure. I remember some moments, I remember some shots hit. But when I think of basketball, I think about practice. I I think about walking down that long hallway at Robert E. Lee High School in Houston where you come out of the school part of the school and you go past the cafeteria and the the chili fries smell kind of comes out into the hallway there and then you, you get past the chili fries and you get into the gymnasium aroma. And the, the locker room, I, I remember walking into what was our, our locker room as a basketball team, and I remember where every single guy sat in our locker room. I remember those team meetings after games, games that had gone well, games that hadn't gone well. I, you know what I remember from basketball? I remember running at the end of practice. How many of y'all remember running at the end of practice? Still gives me a cold chill. I remember running horses. We, we call them horses or suicides where you'd run lines on the court and coach would have you run two or three of them back to back and then he'd go, okay, one free throw. You make it, you go home. You miss it, you run again. Who wants to shoot? Like, Give me the rock, coach. I can't do anything else, but I can shoot. That's, that's what I remember because I, I remember being a part of a team. To dig in, in our Christian faith, requires being a part of a team. And and that's why we're, we're digging into this series, because here's what I believe. I believe with everything I have that we, deep, deep down, want men who are tough enough to love, lead, and serve their families. I believe we really and truly want those kind of men. I, I think we want men who are tough enough spiritually to not let life just passively happen to them, but they will lead their homes spiritually, financially, servingly. And they're more concerned with their kids discovering the ways of God than they are their foot speed or their ball handling. I, I believe that we really and truly deep down want a life that doesn't require the bottle to take the edge off at the end of the day. That we don't have to escape a life that we're creating anyway, like fugitives on the run from the law. I I believe that we want to be tough enough to raise a generation of students who will not drink their way through high school and college, and they will guard the gift of their sexuality until they get married, if that's what God wants for them. I, I believe that we really and truly want to be tough enough. To not just invite somebody to church, but to actually stand up for our faith no matter the cost. No matter what anybody says about us or threatens us with. I I believe that this is what God has called us to. I I believe that that this is what we're supposed to be about. And and that doesn't happen apart from Jesus. That, That doesn't happen apart from the family of faith. You know, it's funny. I remember the very, very first days of Lake Hills Church. I remember being a, a young, young pastor. By any measurement you want to use, I am no longer a young pastor. I've never in my life heard about, I've never seen somebody or a family step away from the church and get better. I've never seen it, never heard of it. But I've got a list that you would not believe of people who have pressed in, uh, of marriages on the brink of divorce. And I'm not talking hypothetically, folks, I'm talking about people I know. People I know who chose. To dig in. And now their kids are digging in the same ground that they've already plowed. Their their, their kids are coming up and they're saying, you know what? My faith is more important to me than popularity. Being being the church and being a part of the church, that's that's what I'm going to orient my week around. I believe that that's what God's called us to. To have a faith that is tough as nails, to choose grit over quit, is hard work. Angela Duckworth is a Harvard and Oxford University-trained psychologist. She currently teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, but before she entered academia, Dr. Duckworth which, by the way, is one of the great names of all time, Dr. Duckworth, but it's real. Dr. Duckworth was, early in her career, a management consultant. And at 27 years old, she left consulting to go teach 7th grade math in New York City schools. And while she was teaching 7th grade math in New York City schools, she noticed a trend that her highest performing students versus those who were most challenged academically, The differences between them could not be explained by simple IQ scores. And so she was intrigued by this and she left teaching to go study psychology, you know, like you do. And she went and got a PhD in psychology. And she and her team have studied both students and adults in challenging situations. They've gone to West Point and studied cadets to try and see if they could predict which ones would wash out versus which ones would excel. They went to the National Spelling Bee to study those competitors and see if they could predict which competitors would go farthest in the spelling bee versus which ones would wash out early on. They also studied sales teams in the marketplace to see if they could predict who would lose their job over the next 18 months versus who would hit their quotas and bonuses and make the most money. And she said when you account for all of the variables across all of these different arenas, There was one key component that rose to the top as the primary predictor of success, whether it was academic, financial, or competitively. And Dr. Duckworth says it all comes down to grit, to long-term perseverance over time, to living life as a marathon and not as a sprint, to understanding that you have to sacrifice some self-gratification in the moment for long-term gain. Now, I told you that to tell you this, Dr. Duckworth admits that teaching grit or describing and bottling grit is admittedly a very, very hard thing to do. But she says that they have identified one component of grit, and it's what psychologists refer to as a growth mindset. What this means is, particularly in students, is that students don't see failure as a condition permanently. They see it as a temporary setback from which they can learn, grow, and overcome. They've got a growth mindset. I think with everything I have that a growth mindset applies to our spiritual faith as well. That if we don't think of faith as something that is kind of reserved for the Hall of Fame, for those superstars of the faith like Billy Graham, Pope Francis, et al., et al., et al., but we realize every single one of us, because of Jesus Christ, has access to growing in our faith, to really and truly digging in and making a difference. It's a growth mindset. You remember the fishing trip that I told you about at the very beginning? I didn't finish the story. Our guide, you know, stuck the anchor in, and we, we sat there and were able to start fishing again. But about 45 seconds after our guide swam back to the boat and climbed back up into the boat, we saw a shadow swimming toward us. David got ready to cast, thinking it was a tarpon coming. And our guide, who by now was back up on the polling platform and had a little bit better perspective and, and angle, he goes, whoa, 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 don't cast, don't cast. And before he could get out another sentence, that shadow swimming toward us had closed the distance to the boat and was now swimming beside the boat, and we noticed it was a six-foot bull shark, one of the most voracious predators in the ocean who had caught our guides thrashing and splashing around in the water and had come looking for a meal. I learned something else valuable that day. If you're going to swim in shark-infested waters, you better have a boat. (laughs) The church is our boat. The church is that safe place. The church is the gift God's given us in shark-infested waters to be reminded, to be equipped and empowered to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be held accountable, it's a safe place. Not a perfect place. By definition, we are a hospital full of sinners. But by definition, we are called by God Himself to be tough as nails. Tough in our faith, persevering, choosing grit over quit. I want you to mark a date down on your phone or on your program right now Sunday May the 8th Sunday May the 8th is Mother's Day gentlemen you're welcome (laughs) it's coming up my lovely Julie my bride will be preaching on Mother's Day as a part of this series she has a very special special message entitled, One Tough Mutter. <laughs> you need to be here for that one. Moms are not. But if you're here today and you've never entered into that relationship of faith, of trusting God more than you trust yourself, and as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do that today. I want to ask you, if you will, just briefly bow your heads. And we bow our heads as a a statement of reverence for God and who he is and what he does. And so when we pray, we, we enter into the presence of God through Jesus. Jesus, who is our priest, and he is the veil, the curtain that opens to the presence of God. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, we invite you to do it right now. Just by praying, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of surrender to the only one who will never take advantage of your surrender because He loves you perfectly as is. Whatever you've thought about or maybe tried to hide, Just come into his presence. Just right where you're sitting, if if this is your moment to step into that relationship, you pray something like this. Just pray silently right where you're sitting. Just say, just silently, just say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to be my high priest. I accept your sacrifice on the cross I accept your new life made possible in the resurrection and Jesus from this moment I will follow you with everything I've got I confess my sin I'm not hiding anything I trust you to forgive me of everything Jesus I'm yours from now on I pray this prayer in your name Amen If you would just remain with your heads bowed for another moment or so. Because this is sacred ground that we're on. When God enters a life, there's nothing more important than that. And so if that was your life because you prayed that prayer of beginning and commitment We want to be your boat. We want to be your family of faith, your church home. And so, two things I want to ask you if you would just before you leave today, take your program and fill out the connect card that's in there. Name and contact information, and then just indicate there on that box I'm committing my life to Christ this week. And if you would. Before you leave, just tear that off at the perforation and hand it to one of our ushers. Or maybe on, on your way out the, the main entrance that you came in, there's a, there's a blue awning out there just says LHC.org. You just hand that card to somebody out there and just tell them, today's my day. That card helps us help and serve you. Come alongside in any way that we can to help. The other thing is, as our heads are bowed, if, if that was your prayer today, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you just raise your hand? Just raise it up high over your head for a second, because as you raise your hand, you affirm this moment. You say, this is, this is real. It's real in my life, and, and it's real in the life of this church. just know that we love you and we want to help any way that we can in our family tradition as you put your hands down we like to put our hands together to tell you welcome home welcome home